As you do so, last week we heard from Jeremiah there was a, a stern warning to the people. The people, if they had looked in the scriptures, would have realized that over 900 years earlier, Moses would have declared in Deuteronomy chapter 28, all of the things that we see in this book of Lamentations. But they had disregarded the warnings, they had disregarded the prophets that God had sent, and therefore the curses of God. His righteous indignation is, is seen in the low status of the people of Israel, the pathetic state that they find themselves in, the misery and the anguish. The time had come for the consequences of their actions. Ecclesiastes reads this way in chapter 3. It says there is a time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. The time had come for the consequences of their actions. In Psalms, the psalmist writes this in Psalm 30. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. As we look at the book of Lamentations, it is not a book about singing. It is not a book about gratitude and praises. Rather, when we look at Lamentations, we see weeping. We see God's anger demonstrated, yet ironically... When we look at this book, it offers a real, tangible hope, and it beautifully extends God's mercy. Last week I dreaded preaching, this week I've actually looked forward to it. Because I, I realize and I see that your lives, my life, are not absent from pain and suffering. There's not a person here this morning who has not experienced pain and suffering to some extent, some to a very deep extent. Each of us has gone through hardships and, and frustrations. And some would say that's stating it mildly. We have experienced death and loss. It is an outpouring, a, a consequence of sin. We, we all go through trials and tribulations. I know full well this morning, listening here in this room, there are those going through those things right now. As we deal with these things, as we walk through these valleys, as we experience those things in our lives and each one of us have been touched by it 
there, there's an outpouring or an internal groaning of grief and sorrow. Sometimes to the extent that, that words cannot express. Speaking in general, we deal with these things in our life. We experience the grief and sorrow because of the impact of sin in this world. And each of us goes through that. But, more difficult yet, and, and harder to deal with, is when you and I engage in these things, when we go through these things, we suffer these times as a consequence of our own sin. It's in these times these valleys that we go through, that we find our hearts in lament. It's really hard to, to find a better word for lament. Lament is, is to express deep sorrow and mourning. Has your heart ever experienced that? To, to lament is, is strong regret typically for something we have done. An action, an outpouring of, of actions. And the lament is often expressed in, in a de demonstrative way through weeping, through crying, through the outward actions of what we're trying to express in the heart. Lament. Some of you are coming this morning with that deep sorrow to a depth that is hard to explain. Some have carried these burdens for, for quite some time and, and you feel the heaviness of lament on your heart. Some have felt its crushing effects as the burdens get laid on top of one another. And harder yet is that lament when we look at that sin. The sin that God is very aware of, the sin that we are aware of in our own heart, our own life. And, and we are feeling the consequences of that sin. What do we do? What is a follower of God to do when we feel and deal with this lament? How are we to respond to that? How are we to go through these times and seasons of, of grief and sorrow knowing full well we deserve the consequences we are dealing with? Often those consequences bring chaos 
and turmoil in our hearts and our lives, don't they? And, and we look and we try to make sense of it all. But in the chaos and the turmoil, how do we go before a holy, righteous God? How do we deal with that? Well, we could run. But Scripture says we can't run far enough. We could attempt to, to escape, hide, but there's no place that we can, we can go from His Spirit. As much as we try to delude ourselves that we can. We could try to avoid discipline, right? I mean, how many of you growing up tried to avoid discipline when dad got home and mom was telling dad about what happened? There, there's an avoidance that, that we try, and we try to get out of what has occurred. But since we can't run, we can't escape, and we can't avoid it, then we must run to him. that we must turn to this great, awesome, powerful God, this righteous, holy, heavenly Father, and we must run and turn to Him. And in turning to Him, we will cry out. We will cry too. We will lean on, we will draw close. And we will hold tight to the mercy that this God extends. Lamentations, just so you know, is God's word. It is scripture given to us by the holy God for you and I. Isn't it amazing that in the very word of God we find a place of lament. A place of expressing grief and sorrow. A place that we can go and protest in very expressive ways our, our grief and our sorrows to a God. Think about that. I don't know anybody who actually likes going through lament, sorrows and griefs, consequences. Nobody's like, oh yeah, I'm looking forward to the consequences of my sin. No one says that. But in it, we run to a God and we, we, we express to Him. We process with our words, our tears, our anguish before God the pain and suffering that we are going through. Often, the pain and suffering that we brought on ourselves. And as we come before this holy, righteous God, think about this. You and I are given a place. We are given a place that we can give voice to our anguish. 
What a God. That he allows us to come to him and express these things to him. In that place of expression, we are able to point to God the, the confusion and chaos of our suffering, and in it we find comfort. I don't know about you, but this fact is mind-boggling to me. Because I understand that as I come to God with my sin, I deserve the consequences that I am receiving in myself. I deserve that. But God has given us His holy scriptures, His word to you and I. And He's given a whole book to our lament, our grieving, our sorrow. And just for the record, our sin should grieve us our sin should bring sorrow upon our heart because it grieves a holy righteous god this book we see the full depth of the consequences of sin and the outcome of sin in the life of people it's a very graphic book to read through. It was kind of nice this week to have a book that was only five chapters long. I love that when it comes to, to grief and sorrow and lamenting before God, it's only five chapters. Think about that for just a moment. A book on lamenting and it's only five chapters. We'll come to that in chapter three, but... But in this book, we find hope at the very center of it. Hope in the depths of our sorrow and grief. How many of you this morning in the sorrow and grief that you are experiencing in this life would just treasure to find hope at the center of it? Two of you, three, okay. The rest of you are like, nope, don't want that. Or you just don't like raising your hands. That's, that's okay. My hand would have shot up because I have gone through grief and sorrow for other sins. Because our sin always impacts others. Make no mistake. I've gone through grief and sorrows of the consequences of my own sin. And at the very center of it, I look to a holy God and I plead for hope. I plead for his mercy. And we're given five Hebrew poems. It's kind of interesting. The book of Lamentations is kind of wrapped in with prophets, but it's also part of the books of poetry because these are poems that are written, they're they're, they're given by, most agree, the, the prophet Jeremiah himself on the backside as he looks at what God has brought upon the people of Israel, people of Judah. And he looks and he mourns. He grieves. And he pens the words of lament forever captured in the pages of Scripture. God's word to you and I.
Look at this book with me. This, this book, as we look at it from, from a, a large perspective, it's, it's a beautiful book. The, the poetry is lost in translation. There's, there's chaos and, and turmoil that we see in the lives of the people. You can't read this book and say that there isn't. The destruction, the grief, the anguish, it's like they're grasping at every word possible to describe this. These poems are, are defined as funeral dirges. They were poetry that would typically be read at a funeral. And as the writer looks at the death, the destruction of a people, of a city, the words are penned in lamentations. But out of that chaos and turmoil, we find, well, order and hope. The, the chapters are each individual poem. Written in an acrostic manner. An acrostic is taking the, the letters of the alphabet and beginning each stanza with that letter. Each of the chapters, chapters 1 and 2, 3 and 5, have 22 verses. There is 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And, and each stanza begins with that letter, just a, a way to remember, a way to draw the people's mind to God Almighty. To make some type of order out of the confusion in their life. It's interesting, though, at the very center, we find chapter 3, which actually has 66 verses. The emphasis is, is there, 66 verses, but each of the three stanzas begins with that letter. Beautiful poetry, but we lose it in the translation into English. Chapters 1 through 3 begin and end with a prayer, just a supplication, a statement made to God. In our grief, our, our response should be prayer. We go to God, we express the things, and then we go to God and, and, and once again conclude with Him. But as they pray it draws an attention that we, in our grief, focus on God. It's so easy to get caught up in our grief and our suffering and focus on me, isn't it? But as we come to Lamentations, we see that the, the focus, the attention is shifted to God Almighty. It's interesting, chapter 4 does not begin and open with a uh, prayer. Chapter 4 is, is the, the, the repentance. But chapter 5 itself is a whole prayer. We'll get to that in just a moment. God uses this book in acrostic form, in very ordered, systematic 
way of those spinning out of control in turmoil to point people to his grace and his mercy. How many of you this morning desire God's grace and God's mercy in your life? (laughs) Wow, more hands went up for that one. Me too. Me too. Chapter 1. We're going to go through these chapters real briefly, real quickly here. But chapter 1. And and you can read this book this afternoon in in under 30 minutes. Five chapters. But but as you read this in chapter 1, Lady Jerusalem, the city itself is crying out. We see a people crying out. Here soon, I believe, it's going to be America that is going to be crying out. Dealing with the consequences of sin. The destruction here is great. Her distress and sorrow and laments. Look at chapter 1, verse 18 with me. Sorry, 13. Verse 13 says, From on high he sent fire into my bones. And it prevailed over them. He has spread a net for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate. Faint all day long. The yoke of my transgression is bound By his hand they are knit together. They have become upon my neck. He has made my strength fail. The Lord has given me into the the hands of those against who I am not able to stand. Look at verse 20. See, see, O Lord, for I am in distress. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword slays. In the house, it is like death. You're like, well, that's cheery reading. I venture to say that some may be able to read the words of this book and relate. It's interesting as they express in, in word the anguish. They are very aware that this is coming from the very hand of God. Notice that. Even the enemies into whose hands they are given, they recognize that it is God who allowed that to happen. They understand that the burning in their bones to the very core of who they are is caused by God himself. And yet, we are called to go to him. And in our lament, we are allowed to go before God and say, God, see look upon my grief, look upon my anguish, look look at me. God looks upon our sorrow and our suffering. 
It's interesting, as you read, they are also looking around to the nations around them, the people around them, and they are crying out, look at my sorrow, look at my grief, my pain, my suffering. Seeking sympathy, seeking some form of comfort. And they find it not with anyone around them, but only when they look to God. But in looking, we find an example. In chapter 2, there is a a dirge of lament and their understanding of why they are going through this. In our grief, we need to understand and express why, and we need to understand who has brought this. In our sin, we need to understand that God is dealing with us. Sin is a hard thing to deal with in our lives, is it not? Because we have to look and see the faults within. The heart, as Nathan was talking about. So often the outward expression looks good. But the heart is what God is dealing with here. Lamentations 2.17. Turn the page there. It's not a big book. It says, The Lord has done what He purposed. God intended to do this. He warned them, but he intended to do this with their sin. The Lord has done what he purposed. He accomplished his word, which he commanded from days of old. He is thrown down without sparing. And he has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might of your adversaries. God had told them that he would do this. Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the way back to Moses. God declared what would happen. You know, you and I should not be shocked. We should not be amazed when we suffer, when we face the consequences of sin. when we come and we see God's wrath. But here's something to understand about God's wrath. God's wrath is not reactive. God's wrath is not volatile and just erupts. It's not something that's out of control. When we think of our wrath, that's what we think of. Something out of control, volatile. But when we come to the wrath of God, it is justice. It is intentional, and it comes from a holy God who deals with sin. And it comes from a God who has told those he loves, I will deal with this. And in his wrath, we find mercy. At the very center of the book is chapter 3. Chapter 3 is, is the greatest emphasis of all of this. The poem, uh, the dirge that is there, lends itself to say, look, here is what matters. And as we go through, we are, we are drawn to the very character of God. As you leave here this morning, as you go through this next week, I want you to see a picture of the character of our God that we serve. 
Allow your image of who he is to be much grander as we look at his faithfulness. You and I serve a God who is faithful. And that's both comforting and scary all at the same time. But God remains faithful and consistent. They say in parenting, one of the best things you can do is be consistent with your children. Children need consistency. They need to know, if I do this, this is the consequence. If I do this, this is the reward. They need consistency. They need faithfulness. And we see a great parenting example in God Almighty himself. As he is dealing with his people Israel, as a loving father, he stays true to his word. He says, if you obey me, you will receive all these blessings. But if you disobey, read read Deuteronomy 28. He lays it out for them. This will be the consequence. Isaiah comes and he lays out, here's the consequences. Jeremiah, here it's coming. And God was faithful to his word. Once again, God's faithfulness is both comforting and scary. I I like the way Wilkinson puts it. He goes, Jeremiah turns tragedy into triumph of faith. He says, God has never failed him in the past. God has promised to remain faithful in the future. In the light of God, he knows and loves. Jeremiah finds hope and comfort. In the God you and I know and love, worship and follow, we can find hope and comfort even in the consequences of your sin and mine. If God is true to his word in discipline, if He is consistent in what he says. How he responds time and time again to our response, our actions, our inactions. If he is consistent in what he does, then there is hope. Because he's promised them. He's promised these people, going through this time, that he will return them. He has promised them there will be good. He has promised them a Messiah. If God is faithful to his word in discipline, God will be faithful to his word in these promises as well. He won't forget them. He won't forget his word. I, I appreciate Lamentations 3. 20. It's in this section that we find one of the most comforting passages of Scripture. This morning I sent it out to numerous ones that I pray for. I love this verse though. Look at verse 20 of chapter 3. In the midst of all this sorrow and grief, we find the words, Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. For his uh, compassion never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, 
I have hope, not in circumstances, not in this world, not even in the consequences. I have hope in Him. Oh, we need to turn to Him. It goes on. In verse 55, it says, I called on your name, O Lord, out of the lowest pit. Some of you are pretty low. Some of you need to call. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my prayer for relief, from my cry for help. You drew near when I called upon you. You said, do not fear. Oh, what promises. Chapter 4. Chapter 4 is just a lament over their sin. They recognize that it is their sin that has put them in the place where they are at. One fourteen. we read it earlier, but listen to how it says in the New Living Translation, He wove my sins into ropes to hitch me to the rope of, uh, yoke of captivity. We form these bonds ourselves in our sin. We entrap ourselves. And they recognize that. There's a, there's a descriptive view in this chapter of the city under, under siege. It's devastating. There's, there's a constant comparing and contrasting as, as you go through this. They remember what they were. They look at what they are now. Jerusalem once in all her splendor, now in destruction and despair. They remember the times of feasting and abundance, and now women are, are feeding on their own dead children. They remember the times when all the nations around them looked to them with esteem and just awe and wonder, and now they are despised and ravaged. Sin in your life and mine, sin in a nation is destructive. It does nothing but tear down but we see a people who repent. Repentance is, is, is having that regret of what has been done. A, a turning from sin. It's a 180. You are going this way, you turn and go this way. Repentance. You stop, you turn, go the other way. It is a change in one's mind. A change in one's heart. And truth be told, some of us need to repent. Some of us need to look at our lives. We need to look at the sin and we need to repent before a holy, righteous God and change our direction. Chapter 5 is such a unique chapter. As well, it is an acrostic, but it's not in order. You see, as we go through this, that, well, you wouldn't see because we don't read Hebrew. But... Those that read Hebrew, I don't read Hebrew either. I'm trusting the scholars on this one. The, the letters are out of order. It's, it's like the one who is writing this down is just, it is a deep anguish and expression of the heart. Have you ever prayed to God and just expressed your heart? And the words may not even make sense to anybody else, but God knows. 
And we see this in this chapter. It's a beautiful, beautiful, powerful prayer. Seeking God to restore them. Oh, we serve a God who is in the restorative work. He wants to restore you and he wants to restore me. They seek God to restore them, to restore the land, to restore what he had promised. Oh, to come to God's word and look at his promises. And we see this prayer, we read through this prayer in chapter 5, and we, we feel the true heartfelt message of it. We see that there is a prayer for oneself, there is a prayer on behalf of others. The prophet lifts up the people and prays on behalf of others as well in this lament. What a powerful thing to lift up others in prayer. Your pastor needs prayer. The person sitting next to you needs prayer. The one behind you and in front of you needs prayer. We need to pray for one another. The book closes in an intriguing way. In verse 19, we read this of chapter 5. You, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever? Have you ever felt like God's forgotten you? They felt that way. Why do you forsake us so long? The agony can draw on and on and on. Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. The end. That's how it ends. You may be like, well, that's kind of hopeless. No. The question there is not of God. It's the question of understanding God. God does not lie. It is against his character. God has made promises. Look at the promise in, in Leviticus 26, 44. They would lean on this. They would hold on to it. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them. Oh, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord, their God. The question is asked there because no, God won't do that. He's promised He would not. And we hold on to His truth. We hold on to His word, His promises. And we realize the hope that we have in God. We see His character. God's word is true, people. God has never gone against His word. God has been faithful to His word consistently time and time again. They knew that they would hold on to that. His character is consistent. Consistent enough to deal with sin. Consistent enough that he would send that Messiah. Consistent enough to show that sin is awful. And it needs dealt
So you and I must never forget. So God calls us to his table. What a picture. What an invitation. That God, in light of the depth of our sin that would require his son to die on that cross, to take your place and mine, And because of his son, he says, come, dine with me. Think about that. Eat. Coming to the family table, I want you to partake with me. I want fellowship. I want you to be able to fellowship with me, God says. Come. And we don't forget. That's why we come to the Lord's table on a regular basis. That night, and if you didn't get one as you came in, please raise your hand and the ushers will, will get that for you. Just keep it up there. Jesus called those closest to him. And he says, come, let's have a meal. Let's fellowship, let's dine together. And that night he gave a beautiful picture that we would never forget what he did at Calvary. Jesus would take the bread and he would break it. And he would say, this bread is a new covenant. Or this bread is my body broken for you do you understand the depth that that god dealt with sin allowing the very son of god to come in flesh and allow that flesh to be broken for you and for me and jesus would ask a blessing upon that bread and they would take it together so in remembrance of that sacrifice let's this morning go before our Heavenly Father in prayer. Oh, blessed Heavenly Father. God, we see sin and lamentations. And God, it doesn't take much to look in our heart and find that there is their sin that we need to deal with as well. God, I pray that as we partake of this bread, God, we would remember the extent sending your Son in the flesh for us. God, we thank you and we praise you and we ask a blessing upon this bread. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we partake? Don't forget. Remember. He would give one other picture. The cup. As they would partake from the cup, he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. It wasn't a covenant just given by word. It was a covenant paid for with the very blood of the Son of God.
the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he says, I want you as often as you drink of this to remember that it cost my life, it cost my blood. There is no remission of sin apart from the blood of the Lamb of God. And we come to it when we remember. Let's ask a blessing on the cup. Heavenly Father, God, that night you would institute something that we remember still today. And our memory doesn't take us to that dinner, it takes us to Calvary. Where we see the precious Son of God, your promised Messiah, coming and dealing with sin once for all. At such a cost. Oh God, our sin costs so much the shed blood of your son. So God, today we remember that. God, we thank you. Lord, as we partake this morning, we, we are humbled at the extent that you would go through for us. So Lord, this morning we ask a blessing upon this cup in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we partake? The people of Judah that day, during that time, would look to the promises of God coming. What a blessing that you and I can look to his promised return. He's coming back. And as often as we do this, we are told to remember that His promise is there. And we hold on to that comfort. We hold on to that hope. God's mercies are new every morning. May we hold on to them today as we live for Him. Let's pray. God, our sin needs lament. We need to be grieved and sorrowed by our sin. Oh, but God, we desire so much to look to you and find hope and mercy. God, we thank you that you give us a path in this book to grieve appropriately while extending hope.